0: Welcome to DemocracyOnTheMove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. Content for this episode was recorded on Thursday, September 9, 2021. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today we're talking with Jessica Henry, author of the book Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened. For nearly 10 years, Jessica was a public defender in New York City where she gained firsthand experience with the criminal justice system. Her book, Smoke But No Fire, deals with a special type of convict. Someone found guilty of a crime that wasn't even committed. Now, you'd think this couldn't happen, right? But it does, a lot. The book presents heartbreaking stories of people trapped in the system for crimes that never took place. Many people's lives are ruined after spending years in prison, being forced to suffer in a Kafkaesque nightmare where nobody believes in their innocence. Some are exonerated, but there's little doubt that a sizable portion of our current prison population consists of people paying for crimes that never took place. Jessica Henry documents this nightmarish scenario in her book and proposes some reforms to to our criminal justice system that can help eliminate this nightmare. After her years as public defender in New York City, she joined the Department of Justice Studies at Montclair State University, where she is a professor and a frequent commentator on national television, radio, and in print media. Jessica, welcome to Democracy on the Move, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Well, you know, the premise of your book is based on the fact that many people sent to prison are not only innocent, which is bad enough, but that a crime hasn't even been committed in the first place. And this is, this is different from being framed for an actual crime. In the cases you cite in your book, there's no crime committed at all. Uh, it's kind of hard for me to get my head around this. So can you briefly describe some cases where this has taken place so that we can get a better understanding of this issue?
1: Absolutely. So most people, when they think of a wrongful conviction, they think of an innocent person who's been wrongly convicted of a crime committed by someone else. And maybe your listeners have watched um, Making a Murder, or maybe they've listened to serial. And those are the kinds of wrongful convictions that have kind of brought the idea that innocent people are wrongly convicted into the mainstream consciousness. What I wrote about in Smoke But No Fire is a subset of wrongful convictions. And that's innocent people who are convicted of crimes that literally never happened. And you asked for a couple of examples. Um, so one would be uh, Cameron Todd Willingham down in Texas. He was executed. So he was convicted and executed for setting up fire for an arson that resulted in the murder of his three children. So he was convicted of arson murder. And he was executed and the main part of his conviction rested on fire science that said oh no this fire was intentionally set well after his execution folks went back experts in fire science went back and said wait a minute that was just wrong the fire science was incorrect and this was an accidental fire Mm. so we see things where Accidental or naturally occurring events are mislabeled crimes, suicides or mislabeled homicides, a baby dies from an undiagnosed illness and someone is charged with murder. Um, And then we also see cases where there's false accusations um, or cases where the police manufacture crime. Either they plant evidence on an innocent person to cover up their own wrongdoing or for personal gain. Um, And sometimes it's just because of policing policies that wind up just pulling in innocent people into this larger criminal legal net. Hmm. And so all of these ways sort of trigger this process of um, identifying something as a crime. And once something's been identified as a crime, the system kicks in to do what it does best, to find a suspect who committed that crime and then to get a conviction. And of course, when we're talking about a no crime case where a crime actually did not occur, they've got to work overtime because there yeah. is no evidence a crime committed was committed because no crime actually happened.
0: So there's a sort of uh, bias that people get right when when a when some sort of event occurs, like let's say a fire, as you mentioned before, and someone says, "Oh, this was a crime," uh, that already begins to to pre-bias people's minds right to, to have them search for a solution for this crime that's that's an issue in itself though isn't it when, when when you know when somebody misidentifies an event as a crime that now suddenly they've got to find somebody
1: right so you know we talk a lot in, in you know in looking at wrongful convictions we talk a lot about tunnel vision and cognitive biases and what really winds up happening is when someone Reaches a conclusion prematurely. um, Let's say in this in this context that a crime was committed when none was committed. um, Then they start to overweight and overcredit anything that supports the theory that a crime actually happened, and to minimize or dismiss or disregard any evidence that would suggest otherwise. And so, tunnel vision is a real contributor to how no crime wrongful convictions happen and take root.
0: So. that being the case, in your estimation, your best estimation, what percentage of people who are currently serving time th- don't that don't actually belong there because no crime was committed?
1: Oof, well, that's <laughs> damn, that is a million dollar question. So, what we know is there the best estimate out there is um, that about four percent of all people who are convicted are innocent. Now, some people would say it's higher than that. Some people would say it's you know less than that. Mm-hmm. But there's 2.2 million people in our prison system right now at any given time. So even if you want to use a very conservative estimate, say 1%, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of innocent people. Mm-hmm. And specifically, if you want to get into how many of those are no crime cases, we actually don't know. Um, but we do know that one third, one third, of all known exonerations involve people convicted of no crime cases. So if you want to take one third and you know, times it by the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of innocent people who are likely in the system, we're talking about a significant number. Wow. And that doesn't include, Dan, just to sort of really make this problem even bigger and more unknowable. Mm-hmm. Um, no crime cases are often marked Um, not just at the very serious end, although we see many of those, but also in the misdemeanor cases where somebody gets busted for trespassing when they weren't trespassing or loitering or whatever it is, and they go to court and they plead guilty to go home and we never see it again. They don't challenge the case. They're never exonerated. um, And yet they were innocent of uh, uh, they were innocent and convicted of a crime that never happened. And so we have no concept, no clue at all about how large of a problem that is in terms of the numbers.
0: Yeah, but even if it's a misdemeanor, they still carry this record around with them the rest of their lives then, right?
1: Of course, misdemeanor cases, people are like, oh, it's just a misdemeanor. They have significant consequences. Um, they're, it's not just a misdemeanor. They have tremendous, t- tremendous implications on people's lives. But- what I'm saying is most of the people who are convicted of misdemeanors don't have the energy, the financial resources or the wherewithal to actually fight a conviction once it's been obtained. And a lot of folks plead guilty because, and this is also counterintuitive. I don't want to sort of ramble too far off away from this question, but a lot of people plead guilty, not because they're guilty, innocent people plead guilty, but because it's the most practical thing to do. They don't have the time or energy or resources to come back to court and fight the case. They don't want to suffer the indignities involved in going back to court, or they can't miss another day of work, or they have child care to provide, or they are the primary caregiver for someone in their home. Um, and so, people plead guilty for all, con- or because you know the consequences of not pleading guilty, of risking going to trial and losing, are so great. Yeah. Um, and so, but at the misdemeanor level, once people plead guilty, they often just let it go. And they don't fight it and they don't move to have their convictions exonerated. Um, and so we just don't know about them.
0: Yeah, I can imagine once you plead guilty, that in itself is could be used as evidence, um, legal or otherwise, against you.
1: Yeah, sure, but there are But you know, if you look, so one of the sources of my data, where that I use for the book, where I get cases from, and where I study some of the patterns that you see in these cases, comes from what's called the National Registry of Exonerations. And for those of you out there who might be interested in kind of playing around with some data or or just looking at cases, it's a really fabulous, user-friendly website. Um, And you'll see in the National Registry of Exonerations uh, database that identifies just how many people actually are wrongly convicted who plead guilty. And it's a surprising number.
0: Yeah, just as an example, I personally have someone I I talked to, a guy by the name of Roshan Evans. Uh, He wrote a book about it. Actually, he wrote two books about it. One was called Stolen Identity. And right on the cover of the book, he puts his prisoner identification number on it. Uh, Mm. He was accused of uh, sexual uh, sexual, uh, uh, misconduct. Um, sexual assault, actually, which never occurred. And he he was a young, as a young child, he was brought up to always tell the truth, right? The truth shall set you free. Mm-hmm. And he said one of the hardest things he had to do was stand in front of a judge and lie. And he had mm-hmm. to lie about his own innocence because leading up to that point, he had uh, uh, even his defenders said, look, if this thing goes to court and if you're found guilty, it's going to be 15 years Right. So he pled guilty, ended up doing jail time. Um, it, there's a lot of circumstances behind this whole thing. Uh, he did. He did eventually get out, and um, but now he has this sexual predator um, tag following him around the rest of his life. And he started this organization called PureJustice.org, and um, he's written books about it and so on. So he's trying to get the word out there but uh yeah you know, when i talked to him about this this just floored me that you could get so deep into a system based on a false accusation that um it really does it, it just ruins the rest of your life in many cases yeah
1: yeah and i mean so false accusations are one of the triggers for these no crime cases and you know one one thing that some of Some folks that are listening may remember are the um, child sex abuse cases from the 70s and 80s where daycare providers were accused of unbelievably outrageous behavior Mm. towards the children in their care. And it turns out that all of these folks were wrongly accused and yet convicted and spent many, many, many years in prison, um, all for crimes that never happened.
0: Yeah, I remember reading about one of them in your book. There were these people that were accused of having these satanic satanic rituals where they were sacrificing babies and and <laughs> and, and no evidence, I mean I mean if a if a baby is missing, you know, there's going to be uh somebody's going to say, "Hey, the, you know, my child is missing," but you know, none of this evidence ever turned up. And yet That's they right, were yeah. still convicted. That's bizarre.
1: Yes. Dan and Francis Keller is who you're talking about, and they were they ran a daycare down in Texas and they spent um, over 20 years in prison based on crazy, crazy allegations about kidnapping children and taking them to Mexico to abuse them and bringing them back in time to, you know, be turned over to their their parents. I mean, just crazy stories. It would be funny, except for they were convicted and their lives were destroyed.
0: That is that is just crazy. And and that leads to my next book, though. I mean, my next my next question. Um, how does this happen? I mean, you, you got to consider that that prosecutors got to be in on this. Uh, judges, police, forensic experts. Uh, you have to have accusers, uh, perhaps some witnesses. Uh, all these things have to line up, especially in these big cases. Uh, it is how can, how can it get through every single one of these barriers and still end up being uh, convicted for a crime that has never been committed?
1: Yeah. So it, you know, I don't think it's some grand conspiracy, although in particular cases it is in fact a grand conspiracy, but for the Mm -hmm. most part, I think people, you know, somebody makes this designation that a crime occurred. And then as we just discussed, kind of tunnel vision, takes over and everyone overvalues. So I'll give you a great example. I start the book off with a story about a man named Rodriguez Crawford. And he was 19 years old. He had a young son who everybody said he just adored. And one morning he woke up to the unthinkable. His son was dead and, um, or was not responsive. And Mm -hmm. so they call 911 and 911, and the story just kind of spins out of control. Rodriguez Crawford was black in a um, town in Louisiana. And, um, you know, you hear the dispatch kind of making fun of the situation on the when they call the ambulance to come. And the ambulance folks refer to it as a crime scene before they even arrive at the house. and they kind of whisk the baby off and they lock the baby into the ambulance while the whole family's outside wondering what's going on, And they call the police. And the police came. And unfortunately, the baby was not um, able to be revived. And the police, instead of treating Matricas as a grieving father, took him to the priesting and started interrogating him. And one of the first responders kind of saw fluid and said it was abnormal when no one else concurred with that later. And they, you know claimed to see bruising that wasn't evident at all on any of the reports. And then things went from bad to worse because everyone had assumed this was a crime. The medical examiner decided that the baby had been suffocated even before the lab reports came back. Now the lab reports, when they did come back, showed the baby had sepsis caused by pneumonia. Hmm. And the forensic examiner was like, oh, well that's incidental. This baby was suffocated. Um, And Rodriguez Crawford had the misfortune of being prosecuted by a, DA down in, in um, Louisiana who loved the death penalty, he was known to be a hanging DA, and he was convicted and sentenced to die. And later, he was eventually exonerated because, in truth, the baby had died from pneumonia and sepsis. And each actor in the system was so quick to assume there was a homicide that they just disregarded the obvious, mm-hmm. which is that this baby was quite ill. Um, And so that's how this happens. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of a a confluence of, and and race is certainly a factor for many cases, not all, but for many. Um, Mm -hmm. Poverty is also a factor for many of these cases. Um, And so it's just sort of a confluence of events that the defense lawyer in that case and in some of the other cases was not doing what they needed to do. They didn't hire the right experts. They didn't do sort of the analysis that needed to happen. Um, Maybe they didn't have the resources Maybe the court refused to appoint them an expert. Maybe they didn't ask. Um, but we see sort of all of all of the actors kind of lining up in ways that disadvantage and ultimately harm those accused of crimes who are innocent.
0: Well, when you line up like the uh, uh, the prosecutors, the forensic experts, the um, the medical examiners, and so on, these are all people that are lined up against the, the potential um, um, defendant. Really, the only person in their corner is the is the the the, the um, defense lawyer, right? And usually, these are appointed by the court, especially if if it's someone that doesn't have economic means to hire a good lawyer. And uh, these, I guess, they would be like uh, public defense lawyers. They probably aren't being paid, right? I mean, is that part of it too that they don't have the resources available, or they maybe they have too many cases, or they're overloaded with cases.
1: It's all of the above. Right. So public defenders do not receive the same support that prosecutor offices have. Prosecutors have all of the cards. Right. They they work with the police. So they're aligned with the police. The police can do all these investigations. They have all the information that they gather from these investigations. Um, And even though the forensic scientists are supposed to be objective and neutral scientists, they, too, often align themselves with working with or for or helping the prosecutor. And so you're 100% right to say the only person really in the defendant's court is the defense lawyer. But defense lawyers, particularly lawyers for the poor, are often overworked and very under-resourced. And even the most dedicated defense lawyer um, is just drowning in cases. And sometimes you get lawyers who are not the most dedicated. Um, There are cases where lawyers are intoxicated or sleeping in the courtroom. Mm. Um, And of course, that's not really going to help an innocent person who really needs somebody to stand up and slow the system down so that people can examine what's in front of them. I mean, the truth is that 95 percent, give or take, of all cases are resolved by guilty plea. And so a lot of time we don't even get a chance to fully examine and vet the evidence that's being used against people. Um, And in no crime cases, that of course really matters because if you had a chance to take a look, the case might actually fall apart. Um, But because the prosecutor has the ability to kind of bring charges and um, bring as serious charges as possible, um, you are often in a situation where pleading guilty is the best bet. But when you plead guilty, you insulate the police from Um, being scrutinized, you insulate the prosecutor from having to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, And so you've got innocent people who are put in these untenable positions of either pleading guilty or risking going to trial. And sometimes they go to trial with lawyers who are underprepared or under or unable to represent them adequately because they just don't have the funding.
0: Yeah, one one observation you made in your book too is, is if you are a defendant in this case and you are um, obviously innocent because the crime was never committed, you don't know the extent of the knowledge that the prosecutor could have versus someone who actually did commit the crime. Uh, they have a pretty good idea, you know, of what they did, and so they have a pretty good idea what the limits are of what the prosecutor has. So uh, it, it, when you're in one of these crimeless sort of defense positions. You really are flying blind. You have no idea what's uh, what's uh, coming for you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you're really imagine trying to prove a negative that yeah. you didn't do something because it didn't happen. That's that's yeah. incredibly difficult. Uh, and when you factor in again, depending on the nature of the crime or the defendant, um, you know, people tend to overcredit the police um, and overcredit forensic science and forensic scientists because they seem so impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, Versus
0: sort of the word of a single defendant. It's just a kind of a side note here. I have a couple of side notes I want to explore here. But I thought about this when I was reading your book. I thought, do you think TV, television influences people's minds? Because like if you watch one of the CSI shows, you would think that everything can be determined through forensic evidence. And reading your book, it's like uh, almost nothing really can be, <laughs> can be exhaustively proved through forensic evidence.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, I think there's a CSI effect today in the courtroom, if there, if a case does go to trial, and remember very few cases do, but when they do, the jury is looking for that forensic evidence. Um, but what we know about forensic evidence now, there was a huge study done in 2009 and then follow up in 2015, uh, presidential, we call it the PCAST, it was you know a gathering of national scientists and um, academics and, and sort of legal scholars, and they all came together and they really examined the state of forensic science and other than DNA evidence, there really isn't any dispositive um, forensic science. So you know, used to people said used to believe like, oh, you could take a hair from someone's head and match it to someone else's head. You can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can analyze it for DNA, but you can't actually visually match it or bullet comparisons or um, bite mark analysis. All of this is junk science, and mm-hmm. yet people are continually convicted of it. But you know what's interesting is even something like shaken baby syndrome, many of your listeners will be familiar with that term. Um, it is this idea that you can shake a baby so hard that the brain is actually damaged um, and it can lead to severe injury or death. Mm-hmm. And the way that shaken baby syndrome has been diagnosed is that there's a triad of symptoms, right? Your brain, if there's brain swelling and then brain hemorrhaging and retinal hemorrhaging, right, if those three things are there, um, then the baby must have died from shaken baby syndrome. And because shaken baby syndrome um, occurs immediately after the baby is injured, whoever was last in the baby's presence is the person who must have shaken the baby. Mm -hmm. This is how it works. Mm -hmm. And lots and lots of people have been convicted of, harming a child, sometimes murder, sometimes just you know a, a very severe assault cases um, under the shaken baby syndrome. Well, it turns out that science shows most people that it would be virtually impossible to shake a baby with the force you'd need to actually injure them to that extent. And that shaken baby syndrome is, is highly unreliable, that it is not rooted in science. Um, and that it should not be the basis of a criminal conviction. And that's kind of shocking because lots of people have been convicted under shaken baby syndrome.
0: Yeah. And well, also, if somebody actually assaults a baby, is it necessarily the last person that was with the baby? Maybe the last person um, is the one who called the police. You never, you never know. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to put these pieces together, I would think.
1: Right. But with with a diagnosis of shaken baby syndrome, prosecutors had a super easy time of it because all they had to do is put on an expert to say, "Up, oh, the triad was there. And remember, the injury happened immediately before the triad would have appeared. So whoever was in the presence of the baby was the person who did it. And so it, it kind of becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. It's quite um, powerful and circular, <laughs> but no. not
0: necessarily true. So um, yeah, something else you brought up too, which I want to digress on a little bit. You you said that there was could be a, a racial and or um, economic status component to the victims of these accusations of these fictional crimes. Is it uh, is it true that people in these in these economic conditions are targeted more by police? Do you think?
1: Yes whenever you talk about the criminal legal system you have to talk about race and you have to talk about class because the criminal justice system has significant implications for poor communities and communities of color and some of that does have to do with policing policies so there are significant times in which the police will over police a community um, and do so on the backs of poor people. So I'll give you an example. When I was a public defender in the Bronx, um, there was a big push to stop trespassing. And the police had the ability, they'd been given permission to go into all of these different um, low-income housing projects and um, to police for trespassing. And they would literally just arrest anybody in the building. Now, trespassing involves being unlawfully on somebody's property. But if you're visiting your aunt or your girlfriend or, Mm -hmm. you know, going downstairs to get your mail without your ID, you're not trespassing. You're on the premises. You're allowed to be there. Mm -hmm. And yet the police were routinely arresting people for being in the lobby. And these folks would get not only arrested, they'd get brought to the precinct, they'd be fingerprinted, they'd be put back in the holding cell, um, and they would be offered a plea at arraignment. And most of the time, people wanted to plead guilty because they just wanted to go home and they didn't want to fight it again. Yeah. Um, and that is something that happens only in poor communities and only on the backs of people who are living in housing projects like the ones I just described, which in the Bronx were mostly Black and Latinos. Um, And so you see that a lot or, um, you know, there've been lots of scandals involving the police who, you know, planted evidence, literally manufactured um, crimes for their own nefarious reasons. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that takes place on the backs of poor people in um, communities of color. So absolutely, there is a racial component to this, um, particularly in the context of drug crimes and drug cases. Um, and there's absolutely an economic component.
0: So the also the the fact that when people get thrown into jail, they can't afford bail. And I, I hear this all the time of people staying in jail because they can't afford to make the bail. And they could stay in jail for extremely long periods of time. I, I, I always thought that when you know, when I was in high school naively studying the Constitution that we all, we all had a right to a, a speedy and public trial. Um, how is it that people can be thrown into jail and sit there for, I don't know, weeks, maybe months?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's one that lots of organizations are trying to work through, right, with the with the idea of bail reform and bail funds, and you know. But in the context of no crime cases, the way that that impacts people is prosecutors are able to obtain plea convictions because people will plead guilty if it means they get to go home. Um, You know, when I talk about in the book, there were there was a sweep. The police sort of busted through um, a town in Texas in Hearn County. And two women were among, you know, sort of 25 or 30 people who had been arrested. And they both had bail set at quite high levels. And neither could make bail, and they were both—you know—they are both similarly situated. They were both African American. They were both single mothers, um, and they both waitressed. I think they both were waitresses. And anyway, they couldn't make the bail. But one of the women had a family that went in, went to bat for her and really advocated, and they were able to get bail reduced to a number the family could make, and she was released. The other woman sat in jail because she couldn't make bail. And she had two small children. She insisted she was innocent, um, but she was offered a plea that allowed her to get out of jail immediately. She was going to be on 10 years probation and she took it. And so what wound up happening is the cases that where people were released on bail those were all dismissed because the police had gone willy-nilly into this community and just randomly arrested all these people for crimes that never happened Hmm. but the woman who couldn't make bail the one who pled guilty and was on probation her life was completely upended because she had this criminal record she couldn't stay in public housing because you know you're not allowed to be in public housing if you have a drug conviction Um, She so she lost her home. She lost her children. um, She was it it became very difficult to obtain employment with the criminal record, all of which would not have happened to her had she had the wherewithal to fight the case by staying out of jail um, instead of sitting in on bail that she couldn't make.
0: So why do Okay, so there's a racial element to this, of course, and I I believe you, you absolutely believe that is true. But there's also another element to police, in and in I would also say to prosecuting attorneys, uh, trying to fulfill their quotas, right? So if you're a police officer and you said, you know, I, I need to make so many arrests or write so many tickets or something like that, you're going to go to the people that is easier to just to easier to victimize, right? And, and you're more likely to get away with it. So that puts you into those into those uh, communities that you were talking about. But also prosecuting attorneys, they have these quotas, and I guess they're, I'm trying to think this is kind of a negative incentive, right? If, if a prosecuting attorney has a high conviction rate, what does that really mean? And, and what, what kind of a goal is that for the prosecuting attorney if half the people he or she convicts are either innocent or the crime was never committed or anything like that in the first place? Don't you think these quotas need to get, we need to get rid of them?
1: Well, so, Dan, to be really clear, the police will tell you they don't have CLOTUS. Um, in fact, quotas are banned in most places. Mm -hmm. Um, there are, they use language sometimes that makes it sound sure sound like a quota. Um, (laughs) but they will tell you that there is absolutely no quota. And the reason there's no quota, right. Is you don't want to incentivize a police officer to go out and arrest somebody who isn't doing anything wrong just to make the numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, and so just to be super clear they would say there aren't any quotas and yet there have been many 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 reports including and lawsuits by officers who say they felt as though they had to make a certain number of arrests um and you know in the book i talk about different examples of police you know police um precincts where they were you know where officers were exhorted to go out and get those numbers but again Mm -hmm not quotas. Prosecutors also don't have quotas, right? I, I, I don't think anyone has ever said you have to get a certain number of convictions. And yet, what I will say is that prosecutors um, do tend to have their success measured by the number of convictions they obtain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't really see a lot of prosecutors getting rewarded for um, You know, letting a lot of people go or dismissing charges, Mm -hmm. although, you know, in certain prosecutor offices now around the country with reformist prosecutors like down in Philadelphia, you've got Larry Krasner um, and he's doing amazing things and refusing to prosecute certain types of cases. And, you know, you've got change in the air in Austin, Texas and San Francisco and Chicago um, so you do have reformist prosecutors who are trying to do things differently, um, but the the general ethos in most prosecutor offices is that, you know, the folks who've been arrested are the folks who are guilty, and our job is to get those convictions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is a mindset that can lead to wrongful convictions because they're not careful, right? They rubber stamp a police arrest instead of examining whether there's a factual basis for it and they accept things at face value or they ignore evidence that they should really be factoring in when they evaluate whether they should proceed with the case you know prosecutors instead of um offering plea deals to make a case go away because it's not you know what when, when, if, if a case isn't particularly strong a prosecutor will sometimes offer a sweet, what we call a sweetheart deal, um, just to get the defendant to take the plea and make the case go away. Mm-hmm. But why should the defendant take a sweetheart deal if the prosecutor can't prove the case? In that instance, they should dismiss the case, yeah. um, and they don't. And so, there's lots of ways in which prosecutors, um, in seeking convictions, are failing to do justice.
0: Well, you, you talked about there not being quotas, and, and um, but there is kind of a, a hidden quota in a, in a sense. The district attorneys are generally um, get th- into those positions by being quote tough on crime. I mean, they're very they're very uh, influenced by the politics that are going on, and so if you have a city or a district that is uh, consists of a lot of constituents that want to get tough on crime and they want to pursue the war on drugs and so on, you gotta get someone in there that that's gonna, you know, feel incentivized to run the numbers up, right? Well
1: that's right. I mean I, I think um we do have when when we most prosecutors are elected. They're not um they're not appointed. And you know what tends to play better to the public is this idea of Um, getting convictions, right? I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, if you really think about what the role of the prosecutor is, it's to represent the people. And that's all of the people. And that includes criminal defendants. That includes the poor. That includes uh, people who are impacted when an innocent person is wrongly convicted. You know, we need to be able to rely on the criminal legal system and its legitimacy, that it's Mm -hmm. trustworthy, Um, if it loses legitimacy because we keep wrongly convicting people, right? I mean, think about it. If if you go with that 4% number, this idea that 4% Mm -hmm. of all people convicted are innocent, um, then you're talking about 1 in 25 disasters, right? If if a plane were going to crash 1 in 25 times, would you fly? Because I wouldn't. Those odds Mm -hmm. are not odds I'd be willing to take and risk my life with. And yet- we routinely risk the lives of the innocent when we don't have a system that robustly considers whether or not people have in fact done what they've been accused of doing
0: yeah well that gets us to the final chapter of your book where you make a number of suggestions on how to address this problem in our criminal justice system so could you go over a couple of these uh, of these ideas that you came up with to give us an idea of you know how we can go about perhaps fixing the problem.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, what's, what's great about talking about wrongful convictions is that, you know, it kind of, we, it creates a playing field for all of us to have this conversation, right? Because you can be super tough on crime, or you can be really progressive on the way that we should be responding to crime, um, and yet everyone agrees that innocent people should not be convicted. And I think even more so, everyone agrees it's crazy to wrongly convict someone of a crime that never even happened. Like why are we spending time and money and resources doing that? So when we talk about ways to reform the criminal legal system so that we are not having people convicted of crimes that never happened, we're also mapping out a vision of a more fair and more just system overall, right? Because the reforms that might reduce the prevalence of wrongful convictions will benefit all people involved in the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are a number of reforms that I talk about in the book. Um, And, you know, some of them involve changes to policing, right? Um, Some of them involve, so for instance, we really need to think about how we label things as crimes. Like, should trespassing be a crime that the police can arrest people for? Mm -hmm. Is there a different way to think about that? Um, And, you know, some of these progressive prosecutors are sort of saying, well, we're not going to prosecute low level marijuana. We're not going to prosecute trespassing. And that reduces the incentives for police to go into poor communities and to be really aggressive in the first instance. Mm -hmm. Um, We can actually hold police accountable. So when the police engage in misconduct, we can actually do something about it, as opposed to allowing business as usual to occur. So, I'll give you an example. In New Jersey, um, they've just now passed a, a, a law that allows for the publication of information about police who have been charged with misconduct. Hmm. That's really helpful because when a person is is you know arrested for something by a, an officer who has a history of misconduct, they will now know that, and it will affect whether or not that officer should be credited, right? Because in so many cases they are blindly um, believed Mm -hmm. and that's problematic. Um, Another thing, prosecutors. Prosecutors are fascinating in our legal system in the sense that they have absolute immunity. So when you wanna sue a police officer, many people now know, police officers have qualified immunity, and that's a very high standard to meet, right? Like you can't, I mean, we need to rethink, I think, how we define qualified immunity. Um, But it makes it difficult to hold officers responsible for misconduct in the course of their official duties, but you can, you can meet that burden prosecutors, you can never touch with a 10 foot pole because they have absolute immunity, not even surgeons have absolute immunity, you cannot sue a prosecutor for their misconduct. So I do think one way, one reform that really needs to start happening is we need to start thinking about reforming how we hold prosecutors accountable, because right now they are not being held accountable. And I think that is a problem. and you know, I can keep going. I'm not sure what else you want. You know, defense lawyers. We need to better fund defense lawyers um, and provide them with additional resources and g- resources, and give them access to experts to counter, um, balance some of the power that is now so heavily vested in the prosecutor's office. Um, and so, those are just a few of the many suggestions that I have about ways to improve the criminal legal system and hopefully reduce. How many people are wrongly convicted of crimes they did not commit, and that did not happen?
0: What do you think about um, uh, speaking of people that are that are convicted of crimes they didn't commit, or perhaps even maybe small crimes like trespassing? What do you think about the fact that a lot of citizens now have video cameras? Uh, you've, we've all seen the videos of George Floyd, and. With more people with video cameras, I I know these cameras don't always capture the whole story, and sometimes it's unfair to the police the way that these video cameras are being used. But overall, it is sort of a check on police and helping them in the long run to become more accountable.
1: You know, it's a fascinating thing. So, you know, again, in New Jersey, the police um, are now required to have video cameras. Um, And I understand that it is a complex sort of set of things. But one of the things that is interesting is, um, you know, I talk about this one case in my book. There was this guy, if you don't mind me telling a real quick story, there's a guy up in Alaska um, named Wasili Gregory. He was a native Alaskan. Um, And he got arrested for resisting arrest. The officer said he would, you know, that he resisted arrest. And he went to court that night, pled guilty, went home. We never would have heard about this case again. It was just a little case. Um, And yet what wound up happening is an anthropologist happened to be there, happened to see the whole thing. And she was so outraged, she filed a complaint. She said, I saw this all go down and for no reason that I could see, this officer went over to Mr. Gregory and threw him down on the ground and beat him up and then arrested him (laughs) and the police were like huh and they investigated her claim and sure enough there was a security camera that captured the whole event on video and it was exactly as this anthropologist had described and mr gregory was um, exonerated of this misdemeanor resisting arrest but this case never would have happened had there not been footage Yeah. Um, the exoneration would not have occurred. And so that can be incredibly powerful. Um, But the reality is that many of these no crime cases would not be helped by the presence of a video because nothing happened.
0: Right, right. Well, you're put in that position of proving a negative, but if you Mm -hmm. have a video, um, it can certainly help put together the story for the defense. Absolutely,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: I never quite understood that charge resisting arrest. Can you, I mean, okay, how do you not get the charge of resisting arrest? So if I, it just seems kind of silly in my mind, like a circular logic tor- sort of thing. A police officer goes to arrest you for resisting arrest. But if you don't resist him, then he has nothing to arrest you for.
1: Right. I mean, you know, I would assume there was some underlying, like, I yeah. don't know what he what the underlying thing was but the t- the charge he pled guilty to was resisting arrest
0: yeah it could have been um, trespassing or something like maybe,
1: that. maybe you know yeah. boy i don't who knows yeah. who knows but yeah it's a good question
0: so uh is there anything that ordinary citizens that are listening to this podcast right now any anything that you can recommend ordinary citizens do to help stop this horrible violation of justice you know the the, the conviction of people of crimes that never occurred what what, what can our listeners do about this
1: You know, I think if you're in a jurisdiction that elects prosecutors, I would highly recommend that you pay attention and, you know, support progressive prosecutors who are committed to criminal justice reform. A lot of, you know, in Austin, Texas, for instance, they just opened a um, conviction integrity unit within the prosecutor's office. So they're going to be relooking at convictions and seeing whether they, you know, their colleagues got it wrong that can be incredibly powerful. So electing progressive prosecutors, I think is a great way um, for your listeners to get involved. Um, Asking your legislator to increase funding for public defender offices and to level the playing field. And if you're in a jurisdiction that doesn't have a public defender's office, which believe it or not, some don't, maybe ask your legislator to create one. Because we know better outcomes come out of public defender offices than you know sort of appointing a divorce lawyer to represent a criminal defendant. Mm-hmm. Um, and supporting some of the police reform movements that are happening on the ground. Because ultimately, the police are the ones who make arrests. And if they are making arrests um, for crimes that never happened, that's a problem.
0: Okay. That's good advice. We've been talking with Jessica Henry, author of the book Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened. Jessica, thank you very much for dropping by today and sharing your experience with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org slash contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you would like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode.